Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Welcome to the very first episode of Book Rising from the Radical Books Collective. My name is Meg Ehrenberg, and in this first episode, I interview Ivan Adhiambo Awar, award-winning author from Kenya, who joins me from Berlin to chat about the recent announcement of Abdul Razak Gurna as 2021 winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Ivan shares her admiration for Gurna's work as both novelist and mentor, and the places where her own novels have been most influenced by his, particularly her most recent, The Dragonfly Sea, which, like so much of Abdul Razak Gurna's writing, depicts the cultural worlds of East Africa's Swahili coast from the perspective of the waters which connect it with the world. We end the episode with a short passage from Gurna's 2001 novel, By the Sea. Hi, Ivan. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me. Hello, Meg. And and I should say congratulations. I've been congratulating East Africans for two days straight. Um, <laughs> it's yes. such an exciting moment. I for shall think I shall I receive. I'll bask in that particular <laughs> glory. Well, I, I saw that you wrote on Twitter that this was a, a family win. And I just, yeah, I just yeah, love yeah. that. And I, and I thought I would ask, you know, if if that's the the family of East African writers, or are you speaking of of something more specific? Who's the family here? No, well, it's it's not it's East African, but it's also those who know or who have met Professor um, Gurna, and who have loved his work and and the man for such a long time. Uh, you know, it feels like you know that favorite uncle that's. A, rather shy and unknown, but then suddenly he's discovered and, and you feel this extra pride in his being found uh, and, and, and you delight in the fact that so many others will now discover his, just his lyricism and his beauty and his, uh, you know, his capacity to um, explore our woundedness, human woundedness in such, such beautiful and tender ways. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's just... a an overwhelming joy to to um, to share this moment. Um, and I, I I know you lived uh, in Zanzibar yourself, um, and I've heard you talk about what a hugely important experience that was for you and your work. And um, I wondered if that's when you first read Gurna's books, or you say you've met him yourself. I mean, is um, is maybe I should ask if if Gurna's Zanzibar is recognizable to you as as your Zanzibar? Oh, oh, in in every single in 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 so many ways, and his he, his work was such an inspiration. I I found his work actually just before I left for Zanzibar. Um, uh, the the owner of Bookstop Chan uh, in Nairobi is the one who introduced me to um, Abdul Razak Gurna's work. And I bought, the, I bought what was it? it was Paradise, Admiring Silence, and and By the Sea, all at once, and and then went to Zanzibar, and, and in many ways he was a kind of spiritual guide, um, uh, or a, a, a literary guide to the place, and and it's especially it's silences and ghosts which I was very conscious of, mm. and then later on in a in a in a kind of twist of fate uh, when I was. Uh, when I was shortlisted for the Kane Prize, he was on the jury, jury that um, gave me the award. So, and he was one of those, one of those who, in many ways, anointed my literary journey. In that he had, in his very gentle, almost very 
self-effacing and shy way said, you know, you must write. I, you know, it just, you know, kind of saying you have a gift, you must keep writing and you must not doubt yourself. So it was, it was, it's very tender and very kind and very courtly. So yeah, he, he has a very special place in my heart. I've not met him myself, but I have heard that from so many of his former students and uh, colleagues, that same sort of sense of quiet encouragement and um, just a, a beautiful human being as well as um, such a, a lyricist. Oh, beautiful. Oh, I, I, As you can see, that's why I guess uh, most hearts are just kind of extra rejoicing and so happy for him. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I've also seen sort of a number of references to to ocean literature or, you know, he's often, um, I mean, so much of his work is, of course, uh, themed around, you know, relations within and across the Indian Ocean. And I wonder if you could speak a little to, you know, what what ocean literature might be, or maybe you would term it sea literature. Mm. Um, but if that if that has meaning for you. Absolutely. It absolutely does. And um, I, 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 Although it it may not be it's not overt, I I I now strongly believe that his way of um, if you want painting, uh, cartography of 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 space and place of the African space that encompasses and embraces the oceans is also something that I have I have adopted at the uh, without without making too much noise about it, uh, including and exploring the African maritime the east african maritime imagination and and using that to speak of uh, uh, deep and profound interconnections and tentacles into the world century old uh, interconnections and, and tentacles into the world um and and the I, and and looking at the world from uh, the place of the waters rather than from land um but also the implications of that the comp- complexities linked to that kind of way of of seeing and being uh, he you know i i'm sure meg i think i suspect part of the difficulty that i think especially the uh, and i'm not being mean about the americans but maybe have had uh, initial trouble about receiving his work is he offers a cosmo an african cosmopolitanism that does not conform with uh, this a rather petty and small imagination of of an of an african history that is supposedly that supposedly begins only when the europeans arrive and and his work is such an incredible quiet and uh, but very deep stake uh, and reference and re- uh, to to that and to an older african history uh, that's one way but the other thing is that what i what i particularly love is his um, and and that's and that also informs my own quest is the way in which even in his work he, he, there's a sort of continuity uh, to Swahili literary history uh, with you know the modes and and the tropes he uses and yeah there's just yeah and and he does that even when he when he, even when he's writing in English so. Yeah, well, I could go on and on. I'm a fan, as you can see. <laughs> I would love to hear you speak more about those, uh, you know, how, how what might we put it, those palimpsests or those literary relations um, across language um, and also across um, genre or, or literary form. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, where, 
is there anything in particular, any particular um, part of the Swahili literary tradition that you that you hear in his work in particular? Like, could you could you give us a little more specifics there? Uh, um, I I don't have his books, any of his books here with me. It, I would have to refer to some of the, uh, you know, for uh, in 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 by the sea, for example, that conversation between uh, the asylum seeker. And 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 the uh, and and you know you know the two, the the two kind of protagonists, uh, the conversation they have is a very Swahili kind of conversation. Uh, the 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 relationship, um, uh, what do you call it, negotiations, um, is something that's so recognizable in in the landscape uh, from which uh, both come from. Um, and yeah, so what can one say? Um, so the memories of of Saleh Omar, for example. Um, and and um, Latif's accusations. I, 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 what can I? You know, coming from East Africa, this. I, I wonder if another person from a different place would recognize it. But when you pick up the book as an East African and as one who's familiar with the Swahili coast, they're recognizable and they're people you know. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. Well, maybe I'll go back to another thing that you that you just mentioned um, in response to that earlier question, which is, which is about cartographies, of course. And um, mm. there's a there's a quotation which I think is also from By the Sea that I've seen circulating quite a bit in the last couple of days. Um, yes. That starts, you know, I I speak to maps, and sometimes they speak something back to me. Yes. And before maps, the world was limitless. They made places on the edges of the imagination seem graspable and placeable. Um, and I think for me that uh, that quote really speaks particularly to your work. And um, I, you know, I'm thinking of the Dragonfly Sea in particular. There are so many maps <laughs> and and map loving characters and. Um, not only speaking to maps, but I think also speaking maps into being. And so I would love to hear you talk a little more about oh, about cartography. I love that line, speaking maps into being. Um, uh, that is such a gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful quote, isn't it? Mm. But I, I wonder, and and it's and it's uh, completely relatable. And yes, I've been, I've all, right from childhood, I've loved, um, I've I've loved maps. I've loved atlases. Only because perhaps probably because I don't have a very actually I was going to say I don't have a very good sense of direction. I need to be honest. I've got a I've got a <laughs> pathetic sense of direction. Um, so the idea of of charted territories is both magical, mysterious, and fascinating to me. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know what more I can say. I think I suspect those of us who are ocean haunted and ocean loving necessarily because of the seeming vastness try to create lines of passage in our imaginations and and the closest um, approximations are of course the physical map um, that not don't necessarily conform to the maps of our own imagination but uh, yeah I guess the cartographies are absolutely uh, certainly for me I think for me maps are maps maps are also literature Mm. Um, but um, uh, but our our professor, of course, is an absolute specialist and veteran in this. His his books are like maps, aren't they? Mm. Uh, they're journey stories, and they point to such incredible, um, uh, to use your word, the cartographies, and and they're very layered, and those and and the cartographies are very layered. Mm. 
Uh, they they are of space, of memory, of place, of of story, and and that's something Professor Gurner does so gently and yet so beautifully. Yes, and I wonder too if that's part of that sort of uh, ineffable Swahiliness that you <laughs> that you identify in his work. I mean, I I'm thinking also of what you've written in the past about. The late uh, Hajigora Haji. Hajigora Haji. Ah, yes. Oh, my beloved old man. The incredible, the incredible, of course, uh, Swahili poet, also from from Zanzibar, from the island of Tumbatu. And yes, Meg. You know, I think you're onto something. I think I, I, it's not something that I. Yeah, uh, of course, you're thinking uh, one should be have been aware of this. But yes, you're right. The, there is there is a, there's a cartographic sensibility embedded not within the language and uh, um, among the among the culture of the peoples but it would make sense they were they were they were a trading nation and they traded with the whole world and and in and and, and they traversed the seas and in, in many ways they mapped the seas families mapped the seas families had ways of of storying of naming and languaging the seas so that they could write their way or tell their way or story their way from from each any one of the the ports um to another destination just just in recitations that show up in forms of poetry different forms of poetry so so beautiful yeah yeah I, what a lovely idea i think i'll explore it further but yes this is, there is definitely a cartographic sensibility embedded in the language and embedded in the culture and i think you know that that is perhaps also what makes uh what makes it so difficult as you say for for so many american readers um i think i mean i think you're exactly right that that uh mm-hmm. that this prize win in particular just you know places a glaring light on our our provinciality um but even that notion of a of an africa that is so outward looking but not at the west right <laughs> i mean that that there's a gaze in another direction and that they're just you know maybe the west is is irrelevant in this uh in this gaze in this in this cartographic sensibility well it it is an old cartographic sensibility and at that time the west did not exist of course and nor nor was it a major player in the waters of the region so um it 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 was neither there it 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 was not even a it was there was no imagination of a significant west um that then later shows up with the, with with violence with the with i think and 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 the kind of bewildered violence that our professor gurna constantly asks even especially when he refers to the revolution but it's also a question that i think he he kind of alludes to when you he speaks about the uh the colonial project why was such cruelty necessary hmm. uh, and it's a very good question um but yeah back to what you said quite frankly the 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 african cosmopolitanisms the east african cosmopolitanisms um the global monsoon complex did not feature the west because the the west was not uh, a factor uh, but it, it did it was it was an incredible global a project uh, that lasted for a very 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 long time. Ivan, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed this conversation.
<laughs> You're so welcome, Meg. Thank you so much. Uh, I've just seen your name. It's lovely that uh, we we meet and talk over somebody that I think uh, we both care about. Care about. Yeah. You sound that you you sound like you absolutely know of his work and know his work. <laughs> I do, and I and I feel the um, the attention to the region on the whole, um, to yeah. Zanzibar and to yes. and to Swahili um, as a language and as a literary tradition, which I agree with you, I think um, lives in his work in some way. Um, yeah. uh, I just, I'm basking in it myself sort of undeservedly. <laughs> no, all of us, all of us. We're, uh, actually, we are all deserve it, I think. <laughs> all of us, we're kind of basking because we know he, would, he wouldn't mind. It's, it's the nature of his heart. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you again. And thank I hope you, we'll have Andrew. another chance to talk sometime in the future. I hope so too. Okay. okay. Be well. You too. And here for the final words on the matter and a taste of his artistry is a passage from Abdul Razak Gurna's By the Sea. Ud al-Kamari. Its fragrance comes back to me at odd times, unexpectedly, like a fragment of a voice or the memory of my beloved's arm on my neck. Every Eid I used to prepare an incense burner and walk around my house with it, waving clouds of perfume into its deepest corners, pacing the labors it had taken me to possess such beautiful things, rejoicing in the pleasure they brought to me and to my loved ones. Incense burner in one hand and a brass dish filled with oud in the other. Aloe wood, Ud al Kamari, the wood of the moon. That was what I thought the words meant. But the man I obtained my consignment from explained that the translation was really a corruption of Kimari, Khmer, Cambodia, because that was one of the few places in the world where the right kind of aloe wood was to be found. The Ud was a resin which only an aloe tree infected by fungus produced. A healthy aloe tree was useless, but the infected one produced this beautiful fragrance. Another little irony by you-know-who. The man I obtained the Udal Kamari from was a Persian trader from Bahrain, who had come to our part of the world with the Musim, the winds of the monsoons, he and thousands of other traders from Arabia, the Gulf, India, and Sindh, and the Horn of Africa. They had been doing this every year for at least a thousand years. In the last months of the year, the winds blow steadily across the Indian Ocean towards the coast of Africa, where the currents obligingly provide a channel to harbor. Then, in the early months of the new year, the winds turn around and blow in the opposite direction, ready to speed the traders home. It was all as if intended to be exactly thus, that the winds and currents would only reach the stretch of coast from southern Somalia to Safala, at the northern end of what has become known as the Mozambique Channel. South of this stretch, the currents turned evil and cold, and ships that strayed beyond there were never heard of again. South of Sofala was an impenetrable sea of strange mists and whirlpools a mile wide, and giant luminescent stingrays rising to the surface in the dead of night, and monstrous squids obscuring the horizon. For centuries, intrepid traders and sailors, most of them barbarous and poor, no doubt, made the annual journey to that stretch of coast on the eastern side of the continent, which had cusped so long ago to receive the Muslim winds. They brought with them their goods and their God and their way of looking at the world, their stories and their songs and prayers, and just a glimpse of the learning which was the jewel of their endeavors. And they brought their hungers and their greeds, their fantasies and lies and hatreds, 
leaving some among their number behind for whole lifetimes and taking what they could buy, trade, or snatch away with them, including people they bought or kidnapped and sold into labor and degradation in their own lands. After all that time, the people who lived on that coast hardly knew who they were, but knew enough to cling to what made them different from those they despised, among themselves as well as among the outlying progeny of the human race in the interior of the continent. Then the Portuguese rounding the continent burst so unexpectedly and so disastrously from that unknown and impenetrable sea, and put paid to medieval geography with their seaborne cannons. They wreaked their religion-crazed havoc on islands, harbors, and cities, exulting over their cruelty to the inhabitants they plundered. Then the Omanis came to remove them and take charge in the name of the true God, and brought with them Indian money, with the British close behind, and close behind them the Germans and the French and whoever else had the wherewithal. New maps were made, complete maps, so that every inch was accounted for, and everyone now knew who they were, or at least who they belonged to. Those maps, how they transformed everything. And so it came to pass that in time those scattered little towns by the sea along the African coast found themselves part of huge territories stretching for hundreds of miles into the interior, teeming with people they had thought beneath them, and who, when the time came, promptly returned the favor. Among the many deprivations inflicted on those towns by the sea was the prohibition of the Musum trade. The last months of the year would no longer see crowds of sailing ships lying plank to plank in the harbor, the sea between them glistening with slicks of their waist, or the streets thronged with Somalis, or Suri Arabs, or Sinthis, buying and selling and breaking into incomprehensible fights, and at night camping in the open spaces, singing cheerful songs and brewing tea, or stretched out on the ground in their grimy rags, shouting ruckus ribaldries at each other. In the last year or two after that, the streets and the open spaces were silent with their absences in those late months of the year, especially when we felt the lack of the things they used to bring with them, ghee and gum, cloths, and crudely hammered trinkets, livestock and salted fish, dates, tobacco, perfume, rosewater, incense, and handfuls of all manner of wondrous things. We missed the ill-kempt gaiety they filled the town with, but soon we mostly forgot them, as they became unimaginable to the new lives we led in those early years after independence. In any case, perhaps they would not have gone on coming for much longer. Who would choose to come hundreds of miles across the sea to sell us cloth and tobacco when they could live a life of luxury in the rich states of the Gulf? Thank you for joining us at Book Rising, the Radical Books Collective podcast. We will continue to celebrate East Africa in our coming episodes, so please stay tuned for more progressive conversations about books, publishing, and writing.